Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. So this is the first podcast of 2019. I actually recorded it uh, at the end of last year, but the first one published this year. Uh, and not today, but in later podcasts, I'm going to be talking a little bit about where I see this podcast heading in the year ahead of us, uh, changes I might make, and things like that. But for today, I'm going to start off the podcast like I usually do, uh, with another poem. Uh, today's poem is called, I'm Going to Pet a Worm Today. It was written by Constance Levy. I found it in the poetry collection Dreams of Glory, Poems Starring Girls. This was selected by Isabel Joshing Glazer. Constance Levy is a children's poet and educator from St. Louis, Missouri, and her books include such poetry collections as A Tree Place and Other Poems, A Crack in the Clouds and Other Poems, Splash, Poems of Our Watery World, and When Whales Exhale and Other Poems. I'm Going to Pet a Worm Today by Constance Levy I'm going to pet a worm today. I'm going to pet a worm. Don't say, don't pet a worm. I'm doing it soon. Emily's coming this afternoon. And you know what she'll probably say. I touched a mouse, or I held a snake, or I felt a dead bird's wing. And she'll turn to me with a kind of smile. What did you do that's interesting? This time, I am going to say, Why, Emily, you should have seen me pet a worm today. And I'll tell her he shrank and he stretched like elastic. And I got a chill and it felt fantastic. And I'll watch her smile fade away when she wishes that moment that she could be me. My guest today is Rebecca Caprera, author of The Magic of Melwick Orchard, which was published in September of this year, 2018. You can find Rebecca's website at www.rebeccacaprera.com. I thank you for joining me today, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I mentioned that you your own book, The Magic of Melwick Orchard, uh, came out just this past September in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about what it's about and uh, what inspired you to write it? Sure. So The Magic of Melwick Orchard is a middle grade novel, um, and it uh, tells the story of a 12-year-old girl named Isabel. Um, and she feels invisible to her family um, after her sister is diagnosed with a form of kidney cancer. However, everything sort of changes when Isabel discovers a mysterious orchard behind her home. And in this orchard, she finds some much-needed hope, a little bit of magic, and also a lot more trouble. So that's kind of the gist of it. I was inspired to write it because of many things. I think books are often just sort of these wonderful blends of inspiration from all different parts of our life. My husband had a family member, a cousin, a young cousin who was going through um, a pretty severe childhood illness. And while not the same as the uh, diagnosis that my character Junie goes through, that experience that we went through and that we observed their family going through made me think about what it would be to tell a story from a sibling's point of view. Um, as you know, you, you know that a diagnosis like that is going to affect the patient, but how does it affect the whole family? And so that's where I had sort of the idea for that. And then um, I grew up in a very small town in New England where we had more apple trees than people. 
And so I grew up kind of in this landscape of orchards and have a, you know, a deep love for apple trees. And so that felt like a very natural setting. And I suppose another piece um, of the inspiration came from Big Sur, California, where I was at a writing retreat working on a totally different project, which I had hoped would be my my debut novel, but I was so incredibly stuck with revisions and was just not getting anywhere. And so I went for a walk um, in this redwood forest to clear my head. And I remember looking up at these massive trees and there was this silvery fog rolling through. And I just remember feeling so distinctly that there was magic in this place. And there, and these trees were just surely magic. And so I ran back to my um, cabin and sort of madly typed up the first chapter of what eventually became the magic of Melwick Orchard. So I think I needed to kind of put that earlier project aside and dive into something new. And and this book is what emerged. You're kind of inspired by both coasts in a way. Yeah, it's interesting. That's true. Now, I, I was reading some of your uh, biographical information on your website, and, and I understand you've done a, a lot of traveling throughout the world, and also that at... Uh, um, you were a ballet dancer as well. And, and I'm just wondering, uh, there are very different things, obviously, but uh, how they, each one of them in their own way, um, informed you as a writer or uh, or uh, the things that you took from both traveling and uh, being a dancer helps to make you think about stories in a certain way. So yes, I, I trained uh, in classical ballet for many years. And, and in college, I actually uh, thought about being a dance major but then transitioned to architecture. And I I worked as an architect for a little while. And that transition, you know, even people say, oh, those two things aren't related. But to me, they they made sense. I mean, I think choreography and design are very related. There's, you know, similar ideas of line and rhythm and scale and, you know, texture and pattern that that are applicable, even though the medium is different. Um, That transition, that kind of creative transition felt really natural for me. And I worked in architecture for, for several years, actually, designing schools and libraries, which happened to be wonderful places full of books. And it was kind of during that time that I tapped into this long-held dream of writing. And um, I think of architecture and writing as being very related. Uh, I actually just did a presentation about that at uh, the NCTE convention uh, in Houston. I'm just talking about how design thinking can inform your writing. So for me, that kind of progression has been pretty natural. And in terms of um, travel, Yes, I've always had this sort of insatiable wanderlust. Um, ever since I was a little girl, I remember we were in Germany uh, with my family. I was four years old, and uh, I was given toast with Nutella for breakfast. And I remembered thinking, oh, my God, you know, kids in Germany are eating chocolate for breakfast. What else am I missing? <laughs> and so I sort of, from that point on, made this little pact with myself that I was going to see as much of the world as I could. And I set kind of the silly goal to see 50 countries and, you know, any excuse I had, whether to study or work abroad, I would take. Um, And I think it really, as related to my writing, I mean, whenever I travel, I carry uh, a journal or notebook, a sketchbook, um, and I just fill it with the things that I see and the, you know, conversations with people that I meet and, you know, I sketch places and I jot down ideas. So it's, it's all, you know, sort of going into that inspiration funnel that eventually, you know, maybe one day will will become a story. And did you meet your goal of uh, visiting 50 countries? I did. I was a little behind schedule. I, when I was young, I thought 30 was positively ancient, which now I know is not the case. But I had wanted to visit 50 countries before I turned 30. Uh, and I was a few years after that, uh, that, that birthday, I, I met my goal. 
I understand that you also uh, do school visits, and I'm wondering what might one expect if they see you uh, do a, um, a, a visit to a school, your presentation that you offer. Sure, yes. Um, I'm excited to kind of dive into this um, more in the new year as well. So I'm happy to offer uh, creative writing workshops. I like to do, uh, I run a, I'm just starting actually, a middle grade middle grade um, book club with my local indie bookseller. So we're going to be reading middle grade novels each month and doing some creative writing exercises. And um, in the classroom, I like to talk about how visual thinking and design thinking can um, inspire create creative writing and um, help students build empathy and tap into their own voices and their own stories. So I definitely draw from my background in design and also my um, background as a dancer in terms of kind of the creative movement side of things. I like to get kids up and moving and be really interactive and not just sort of sit in a chair and say, okay, now you will write a story. You know, I like to to engage them with their whole bodies and, and their whole minds if possible. Now, the book you chose as one of your favorite uh, children's books is uh, Inside Out and Back Again by uh, uh, Tainha Lai. Uh, it was first published in 2011 by HarperCollins, and it was a Newbery Honors book and awarded the 2011 National Book Award for Young People's Literature. Uh, for readers who might not have had a chance to read this uh, book, can you talk a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Yes. This, um, like you said, this is definitely one of my favorite books, um, beautiful middle grade novel written in verse. And it is a semi-autobiographical novel. And it tells the story of a 10-year-old girl named Ha. And um, she has lived in Vietnam her whole life. And as the Vietnam War draws closer, she and her family are forced to flee. And they board a ship and go to a refugee camp in Thailand for a short period. And then after that, um, they end up in Alabama which, as you can imagine, is just a staggeringly um, different place and environment and culture from um, Saigon, where um, she was raised and lived her whole life. And so the story is really focuses on a year of her life um, in Alabama, and it explores, you know, ideas of um, immigration and change and resilience and grief and healing and family. Um, and I think, you know, like you said, it was published in 2011 and it, it focuses on events that took place in 1975. But I really think the book is um, so timely, um, perhaps more now than ever. Um, you know, when I, I went back and reread the book before our conversation tonight, I was struck by the dedication in the book, which I hadn't noticed the first time I read it. And the dedication says, to the millions of refugees in the world, may you each find a home. And that just sort of, you know, my breath kind of caught in my in my throat when I was just thinking about how important books like this um, are and how they can really be tools for building empathy and, and that children, you know, we should give them to our children to read, but we as adults should be reading these stories as well. As you mentioned, this uh, book is told through the viewpoint of this young girl, Ha. And uh, what is it about her as uh, a character? Because like when we first meet her, she's not always the nicest person. So she's not a, a perfect person by any means. But what is it about her character that makes her um, engaging and relatable as uh, a character that um, the reader is introduced to? Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, I, you, you know, you said that she's not a perfect character. And I think that's what I love about her. That's what makes her feel so real. You know, she's going through these incredibly difficult transitions in her life and these she's frustrated. And at times she gets mad and sometimes she is mean and sometimes she acts out. But 
you know, I, I think that those parts of her personality really make her feel like a real child, like a real person. And, uh, and she's just so vivid. I think all the the characters are so well drawn in that way. You know, there's, I'm just blown away by how uh, the author Teng Ha Lai can fit so much emotional resonance um, into such an economy of words. I mean, I think this book is like 15,000 words, which is nothing. And yet you have these fully developed characters. As you mentioned, the the main plot is, of course, about uh, going from Vietnam and going on that boat and then eventually ending up in Alabama. But the book is also full of these little details, uh, such as uh, Ha's English lessons and the struggles with that. Um, this little chick her brother stows away, her mother's ring. And uh, and I remember in particular uh, the importance of papaya uh, to Ha and uh, how she talks about it and then this gift she re- receives at the end and her reaction to it. I'm just, uh, what are these details? Are there ones that stand out for you and what do they bring to the story? Yeah. So I think you touched on a lot of them. I think the papaya is especially um, important. Um, I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning she has this papaya tree that she's uh, been nurturing outside of her home in Saigon. And it's really interesting that there are five fruits that begin to grow on this tree. And I think they're very symbolic of her and her uh, four family members that that she is with throughout the story, her mother and her three brothers. And, you know, she had, this is her favorite food and she has to leave before um, these beautiful fruits are fully ripe. You know, even when she goes to Alabama, she's eventually gifted some dried papaya, but it's not the same. And uh, I think that I can't, I can't go to a grocery store today and see papaya and not think of this book, you know, so that was particularly powerful. I think the the English lessons were another really interesting thread because it, again, in terms of the building empathy, you see your own language. I mean, the English is my mother tongue. So I, through her poems about learning the strange, strange rules of our language, you, you have kind of this um, appreciation for how incredibly difficult that must be. And to sort of wrap your mind around these idiosyncrasies of this language. So I think those the, the papaya and the, the English lessons uh, definitely stood out as some of those important threads. As you mentioned, this this book is it's it's very short, but we get introduced to a lot of characters. But uh, uh, I always thought it was interesting. One of the most important char- well, not the most important character, but an important character in the book is one that we never actually meet, uh, namely Ha's father. I'm wondering why I think he's so important. This character that we only hear about, but we never actually see or hear from. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, he he's I think he's missing he went missing 9 years or was kidnapped or taken as a prisoner of war 9 years before the book takes place, which means how was a year old. So of course she doesn't have um a memory of him. She ha- her mother has a photograph that she puts out on an altar occasionally, but you know, even the mother can't really look at that photograph for too long. It makes her too sad. And there is sort of this thread of hope that perhaps he's still alive, that perhaps they will be reunited. But then, you know, there's a very poignant scene where the mother is sort of, everyone's sort of looking for a sign to see whether or not he's going to return to them or whether or not he's alive. And and shortly after the mother loses this uh, precious amethyst ring that uh, the father had given to her. And at that point, they all sort of accept this as a sign and make peace with him uh, no longer being in their life and no longer being alive. And yeah, there was something really beautiful and and really sort of heart wrenching about that. 
Uh, and I think he represents just this like puzzle piece of their family that, that she never quite can grasp, can never quite grasp. And so she's always longing for him to show up um, and sort of rescue them, but it doesn't happen. And um, they have to sort of find other ways to navigate their situation and, and, and build a life for themselves as this unit of, of five. It's, it's interesting. Uh, usually uh, many people think of children's books as always having a happy ending where everything is resolved. Uh, and in this case, um, I wouldn't say it's a, a tragic ending, but, you know, the, you know, the father doesn't mysteriously appear and everything and they're all reunited, you know, so there's that, you know, that that sense of loss, but also uh, coming to terms with it that I think people don't always realize there can be an aspect of children's books as well. Yeah, I think it's important to reflect real situations and, um, you know, approach challenging subjects with honesty um, and heart, but also hope. And I feel like this book has a very hopeful ending. And I think that's what, you know, it's it's uplifting. She's gone through a lot, but you, you feel like at that, you know, that last page, you feel like she's going to be okay and her family is going to be okay. Yeah, I think it's it's important to reflect a variety of experiences that that children do experience that do, children do you know face on a daily basis now another important character in the book is one we we meet but he's never i don't think he's actually given a name he's just referred to as the pink faced boy and what is it about him that makes him so loom so large in the book even when he's not there yes i mean he's kind of like your classic bully um he's taunting her he's chasing her down um he's just he's making her life in Alabama miserable. And, um, you know, there's an interesting note, the copy of the book that I have um, has some extra back matter and it has um, a letter, you know, a note from from Hank, from the author. Uh, I'll just read you a little portion of that, which kind of relates to the, that, the pink-faced boy that you're talking about. Tangalai says, children do not act in a vacuum. How they behave directly reflects what adults are saying around them. So while I now understand my former classmates' behavior, I do expect them to have grown up and gained perspective and to speak with more care and insight around their own children. Refugees are still coming to the United States every day because elsewhere in the world, wars rage and people still flee. I choose to believe that these refugees would be granted with more awareness and compassion than I was. So, you know, in a way, she's offering forgiveness to that character, to that boy, who may represent many people in her own experience uh, that made her her life difficult and, and unpleasant. Um, but, you know, she's kind of offering them forgiveness and she's sort of hopeful that that we have changed. And I'm hopeful the same. I'm not sure it's the case, but I, that's, like I said, all the more reason for, for books like this to exist. This book, as you mentioned, is told in, in free verse. And I'm wondering, uh, what is, why do you think it was important to tell it in free verse? Could it be told a different way? But she, I mean, she chose this particular means of telling her story. What is it about telling a, telling a book in free verse that is different or adds something to the story that just um, in a standard prose uh, wouldn't quite accomplish? Yeah. Well, what's interesting is I um, I had read some various interviews with the author where she talks about the evolution of this book, and it actually took her 15 years to write this story. Um, and she started it as an adult novel, and it was like this giant family saga that spanned 3,000 years of Vietnamese history, and it was a very different story. And she said it was just kind of cumbersome, and you know, it was written in prose, and it just felt so heavy, and it wasn't 
it wasn't getting to the core of what she wanted to say about um, this experience. And um, she talks about um, one day just sort of jotting down almost like notes from the point of view of her, from the 10-year-old's point of view, as opposed to the adult's point of view, and kind of tapping into her mind and and what would the world and the experience look like? Because that's what she lived. I mean, this is this is based on her life. And she said as soon as she did that, it kind of opened up the floodgates and, and the story kind of found the form it was meant to be told in. And one thing that I also found kind of interesting about the free verse uh, for this book in particular is that the author says that um, these sort of short uh, phrases and sentences kind of mimicked the flow and the cadence of the Vietnamese language. And so it it felt like it was very well suited to the book. So, uh, you know, even though it's written in English, but I thought that was kind of interesting that it worked out that way. In terms of, you know, free verse, um, I also write in verse my next two books, which are um, tentatively scheduled for 2020 and 2020 run, are written in in verse. And I think those stories, just like this story, needed to be told in verse for whatever reason, but you have to be able to make a case for it. And I think sometimes when you're dealing with heavier subject matter, the white space of verse allows the reader some breathing room. And I think you can approach certain subjects uh, very sensitively and uh, I think verse just allows that. It also provides a really interesting rhythm that's different than prose. Uh, I also, because I'm a visual person, I'm always intrigued by the way that verse allows you to play with the black and white on a page, the way that the words um, fall on the page. You know, if you're looking at concrete poems or, you know, couplets or, or you know, different types of structures on the page, there's a visual element to a verse novel that um, you don't always get in the same way in a, a traditional prose novel. Do you find uh, in your own experience, the process of writing a story in free verse, is it much different than writing a story in just a uh, standard prose? Uh, do you a different approach? Do you do a pen and paper instead of on a computer? I don't, I don't know. I've never tried it. So I don't know if it, it, it maybe it's maybe it's pretty much the same. For I mean I can only speak of my own experience. I don't know um, for for Teng Ha Lai how how it uh, works for her, but I I did find it to be different. I find I can write poems in isolation and then I print them out on these little quarter size sheets and I spread them out um, in my office floor and it like takes up an entire room and it looks I rearrange them to kind of you know get certain themes together or create patterns in the book um, and so you can really write it out of order. At least I find Caroline Star Rose, who is uh, the author of Maybe, which is a historical uh, novel in verse, as she has an interesting blog post where she talks about writing a verse novel is like um, sewing a quilt. And each poem is one of those um, squares of fabric that you stitch together. And I, I really go back to that visual a lot. And I think for me, that's how it differs. I can't really do the same with a novel in, in, in prose, but um Verse definitely allows you to kind of play with the structure and and the layout. Now, this book uh, is a personal story, but it also deals with a moment in history, specifically the Vietnam War. And do you think there's a value in using a book like this in conjunction with other texts uh, in teaching uh, the history of that time? Oh, of course. Yeah, I think it could really enrich, you know, nonfiction. And I think just the sort of message of empathy and kindness that this book brings, you know, there's, um, there's this really interesting passage in the book where she talks about the other people, uh, um, the other refugees 
pain, not really registering to her. But her brother, her brother has just lost um, this little chick that he was very attached to, a little bird um, that he'd been sort of nurturing. And um, he was devastated that this bird did not survive. And she can feel his pain in a way that she can't necessarily feel strangers' pain. Um, and she says, I don't know them, so their pain seems real. Next to Brother Coy's, whose eyes are as wild as those of his broken chick. And I think, I don't know, there's just something about that passage that made a lot of sense. And I think if you were to teach the book in conjunction with other materials, you would get a different viewpoint. And it's not just names and locations and, and dates. Um, history is, it's about people. And um, this is the story of one of them. And I, I think it's really important to to integrate these kind of texts. Now, there's a, a question in the past few podcasts I've been doing. I keep coming back to the uh, same uh, question, which is a question about titles, about what, where titles come from and what they might mean. And this this book has an unusual title, Inside Out and Back Again. I'm just wondering if you've given any thought to what's the why this title? The, what sometimes authors give titles to tell us something about how we should look at a story or give us an idea of of how to read it. And what what do you think this title, Inside Out and Back Again, might be telling us? I mean, I think it's a a good description of the way that Ha and all of her family members must feel like almost like just completely um, their whole, their whole self has been sort of like flipped inside out and then they kind of return to who they were, um, but a different version of themselves. Um, I think it's a title that sort of implies a voyage or um, a journey of some sort. And of course hers is a, a physical journey from Vietnam to Alabama, but it's also an emotional journey. And I think, you know, it's about starting off in one place and then eventually coming back to, she sort of regains that confidence that she had lost. And um, I think it, it, you know, it reflects all of that. I mean, it is an odd title. I'm not, sh- I still wonder if it's the best title for this book. And I had read some, some interviews where, um, you know, they said that this, this book went through, I think, many, many uh, different titles before they decided on this one, which I know a lot of books do. My own book went through countless iterations before eventually deciding on the final one with with the publishing team. But um, I do think it suits suits the story. Now, I know you had a chance to uh, share a passage already. Were there any other passages that you wanted to share? Sure. There's one specifically about papaya uh, that I'd like to read. It's called Wet and Crying. And I think one of the things that the author does so beautifully is she doesn't say, ha, feels sad, or I feel sad. She shows you these emotions through this most vivid imagery. And you'll see what I mean, I hope, um, in this passage. So um, this is right before they are about to flee Saigon, and it's called Wet and Crying. My biggest papaya is light yellow, still flecked with green. Brother Vu wants to cut it down, saying it's better than letting the communists have it. Mother says yellow papaya tastes lovely, dipped in chili salt. You children should eat fresh fruit while you can. Brother Vu chops. The head falls. A silver blade slices. Black seeds spill like clusters of eyes, wet and crying. April 28th. So I just think that's such a beautiful way of describing, you know, through the image of this papaya, 
what they're all feeling kind of severed and emotional. Well, Rebecca, uh, thank you so much for picking this book. It gave me a chance to reread it again. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on your two-year podcast anniversary. I really enjoy um, listening to your program. And um, I learn about so many new, wonderful children's books that um, make my pile even higher. (laughs) So thank you. You can find Rebecca's website at www.rebeccacaprera.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.